Let me just pray for us before we get into uh, the passage this morning. Would you bow your heads with me as we pray? Father, Lord, we want to continue to bless your name during this time. This is not a time of just opening of our ears, but it's a time for our hearts to be attentive to your word and to your spirit. And Father, we ask, Lord, at this time now, you would seize our attention and show us what it means to truly worship you, to truly give you our gratitude and our thanksgiving, that every part of our life, Lord, not just our praises, but our day-to-day meditations and thoughts and singing, Lord, would be for your glory. So we ask you to come and work in our hearts this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have your Bibles, please open up to Numbers chapter 21. Yeah, you can get the lights on for us over there. Numbers chapter 21. And I have a feeling I've probably done this passage sometime in the last few years. I don't remember when. Uh, But I thought it appropriate to continue on the theme of gratitude and thanksgiving as we get into the month of November. Last week, we talked about the importance of having family table manners when we come together for the Lord's Supper. There's a certain gratitude that we ought to have when we come before the Lord's table as we reflect upon what he has done for us. There needs to be that sober evaluation of our lives and that worshipfulness uh, in our spirit. I want to continue on the topic of gratitude this month, and I want us to begin with this reflective question. Am I a thankful person? Am I a thankful person? Am I someone that regularly recognizes the reasons that I have to be grateful? And do I respond to those reasons with appreciation and thanksgiving? I don't know about you, when I think about that question, I very quickly realize there are so many things that I can take for granted in this life. Sociologists today have identified the benefits of gratitude in society. A study done at UC Berkeley found that showing gratitude increases a person's happiness in life, their satisfaction in life, it even improves their sleep, it leads to better relationships, it's even had physiological impact on people's lives. They have less headaches, less congestion, less stomach pain and coughing and sore throats. That's probably half our church this last week. A lot of you guys have been sick, and I imagine some of us are out sick today. In short, the practice of gratitude seems to make a person's quality of life better in every way. In another article by the same university, they summed up the importance of gratitude as a way of making society function properly. Gratitude makes us more willing to serve one another. It motivates us to be good to one another. And from their perspective, gratitude is just this quality to pursue because it's good for you and good for society. The whole world will be wonderful if we were all grateful is the image that it paints. Well, it seems that things are not that simple. Another follow-up article that came out a few years later showed that most Americans found that while they were personally very grateful people, by and large, Americans believed that society as a whole was becoming less and less grateful. 
And so it's funny because the article doesn't try to really explain this. They just say that that can't be possible. It's not possible that everyone is growing in gratitude, yet at the same time, society is becoming less and less grateful. They didn't really have a real answer except to say that's not possible. What's the issue? Could it be that we as people are not inherently grateful people? That we are pretty selfish people that tend to be entitled and to take things for granted. Despite all the benefits for gratitude, the research shows that society slides towards ingratitude. I'd like to propose to you this morning that for all the good intentions that the researchers and professors had, that they are powerless to cause people to be grateful for life. You can't force someone to be grateful. No matter how much they extol their, the benefits to gratitude, individually and for society, ultimately, gratitude is not a just personal issue. It is a spiritual issue. It's not just a matter of mindset. The late, great Billy Graham famously quoted, gratitude is one of the greatest Christian virtues. There should be no type of people more grateful and thankful in life as Christians. He goes on to say, on the flip side, ingratitude is one of the most vicious sins that we uh, manifest. Gratitude is not just a matter of mankind's relationship with one another. Uh, while we should certainly give thanks to one another for the good things that we do for one another, the good, good things that we receive, the issue of gratitude ultimately goes back to our relationship with God and our trust in God. So jot this down if you're taking notes today. God must be the anchor for our gratitude. God must be the anchor for our gratitude in this life. If our reason to be thankful and grateful in life does not trace back to our gratitude to God, you will quickly find that you are blown all about by the storms and troubles of life. In Numbers 21, we read of the final instance where the Israelites grumble before God before entering the land. To this point, the Israelites have complained and opposed Moses more than a dozen times. Can you believe it? More than a dozen times they've come before Moses and straight up told him, we don't want to be here, we're ready to go back, and we don't want your leadership. And so in the chapter that is before this, in chapter uh, 20, Numbers 20, Moses has had it just up to here with the Israelites. And he gets so angry at their continual rebellion that he smacks a rock to get water to come out of it instead of talking to it. And unfortunately, he gets banned from the promised land, right? And so things are really coming to a head here. The people of God time and time again are disobedient. And man, you've got to feel for him. He has put up with them all this time and he has interceded for them and he has begged God, don't destroy this people and start over with me. And finally, at the end of the day, he doesn't even get to go into this promised land. Now, this is the sixth time in chapter 21 that they complain about food and water in particular. In Exodus 15, 22, they complain that the water is bitter. In Exodus 16, they complain about their hunger, so God gives them manna. In Exodus 17, they complain about their thirst. Numbers 11, they complain about the fact that they need meat. In Numbers 20, they complain again about needing water. That's where Moses messed it up. And now this is the sixth time they complain about food and water. 
I want to make clear that what you're reading today is not just a plea for provision. That would be totally understandable for a hungry, thirsty group of people. Instead, we read an incredibly self-centered complaint by a people that have totally disregarded the goodness of God and faithfulness of God in their lives. Let's look at verse 4, shall we? Verses 21, uh, sorry, chapter 21, verses 4 to 9. They traveled from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against Moses and uh, against God and against Moses. Important order right there. First against God, then against Moses. And they said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people, and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke out against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord would take the snakes away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake, put it up on the pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when, they, then when anyone was bitten by a snake, they looked at the bronze snake and they lived. Sorry. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. First thing I want us to notice here is the context to why people are angry. Look at verse 4. The people are traveling from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea to go around Edom. The people wanted to go through Edom initially because it would have been the straightest path, right? The, close, the, the shortest distance between two points is always a straight line. But we read in the chapter prior that the Edomites, these are descendants of Esau, said, no way are you coming through our land. Go find another route. So these people now have to take a really, really long detour to get around. Uh, it's not a perfect example, but imagine they shut down 20 and 30, and now you've got to make this huge loop around DFW, right? And the people are so tired of having to wade into travel, they're getting really frustrated and upset. But all along the way, God is with them. In fact, in the beginning of chapter 21, they go to war with the Canaanites. They got to clear them out of the way to take their detour, and God gives them victory. But even in the midst of the fact that God is at work, the people are frustrated. And once again, for the sixth time, they turn and they complain. Now, you might think to yourself, why does God punish them so severely? Poisonous snakes? That seems like a really strong reaction to people that are just hungry and thirsty. Doesn't this seem like an overreaction? Well, let me put this in context for us. The first thing they say here in verse 5, it says that they spoke against God and against Moses, and they say, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die? God had previously to this shown them some of his greatest demonstrations of power to bring them out of slavery in Egypt. If you look at all the miraculous accounts that you may see in the Old Testament, there's not a single place that shows more successive demonstrations of God's power than the plagues upon Egypt. Right? God pulled out all the stops against the Egyptians. He polluted their water supply and made it blood. He sent all manner of pests. Imagine your house filled with frogs and gnats and flies. 
In fact, I get some spiders and roaches and I get annoyed enough. Imagine all of those things infesting your house. He strikes them with disease and strikes down their livestock. He causes a blackout over the land of the Egyptians. Now, how frustrated are we when we don't have any light? Imagine it was all dark all the time. That causes depression in some places around the world. He, he, um, Finally, uh, or he drops hail on them. Uh, if you're in Arlington, maybe you got hailed on recently, except this was major hail that destroyed all the crops. And then finally, he even goes so far as to take the life of every firstborn while protecting all this while the Israelites from those plagues. God showed that he would do just about anything to make sure that Pharaoh in his stubbornness did not keep his people captive. God did everything they could have asked to bring them out of that land and to secure their safety. And not only that, to bring them fully out of the land, God even made sure to get rid of the Egyptian army, the global superpower at that time. God led them through the Red Sea, split it open miraculously to make a way where there was no way. And by the way, that's after he led them to that dead end to show them this is my power, not yours. But after that, Pharaoh's army came after them. They had a change of mind. And by God's power, he seals that Red Sea once again and it floods and destroys and drowns Pharaoh's army thoroughly, fully, wellly, and truly, they were rescued by God's mighty hand. And God tells them clearly in Exodus 14, right, when they're on the verge of being wiped out by this army, he says, do not be afraid, stand firm, and you will see the deliverance of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you today. For the Egyptians who you see today, you shall see again no more forever. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. God said, you don't have to lift even a finger. I am going to take care of you guys fully, right? No effort needed on your part. I'm going to take care of it. And then he promises after that to bring them fully into this land, this promised land that has all the provision they need, a place where they can flourish and live in freedom. And of all of these things that God has done, what is their response? You, O oh God, are cruel. You, O oh God, have brought us out here to die. There is no recognition of the goodness of God in their lives. This is pretty much blasphemy. This is tarnishing the faithfulness of God. Notice the complaint is not just against Moses. Probably they went to Moses to complain, but the text says that it was a, a, the people spoke against God and against Moses. When we complain in life, when we say we don't like the lot we've been given, we're not just complaining about circumstances, we're making a statement that God, what you are doing in my life is inadequate, that I am dissatisfied, that I deserve better from you, that what you have done for me does not amount to enough to make me joyful and happy. I'm not here to guilt any of us because I've been there just like you all have. But I want us to think upon the fact that if God has really done so much for us, and we'll get to it later, spiritually what God has done, then we need to be careful with how we complain. There's a place to pour out our heart before God and say, Lord, I'm hurting and things are hard. But there's also a point where we cross over just into grumbling and ingratitude. 
And God will lead us through that. He loves us. He'll be patient with us. He'll walk with us. But there may come a time where he may discipline us, and that's what you're seeing here. He doesn't want the Israelites to carry on at this rate, missing out on all the goodness that he has done for them. Instead of despairing over our circumstances and our challenges, the Israelites here, they, they should have clung to the promises and plan of God that they have seen enacted all of this time. You see, God must be our anchor for gratitude because our own expectations and plans can so easily go awry. But God's purposes and presence are never derailed. Jot that down. The first reason God needs to be your anchor for gratitude is that his purposes and his presence in your life are never derailed. That if you put your, your gratitude, your thanksgiving, just upon the fact that life is working out, things are going your way as you wished it, as you envisioned it, as you hoped for it, then that type of gratitude is gonna get blown apart the minute things turn against you. And folks, how many of you all know that life does not go according to plan? None of us imagined that the people that were close to us would get stricken with disease at some time. I didn't imagine that my father-in-law and mother-in-law would have their house flooded five feet and destroy everything in their house. Last, I think it was like just three days ago, right before mom was supposed to come over to help Virginia and I. Y'all didn't expect maybe that your life's career path would go in the direction that has gone. You didn't expect that at this point maybe you would still be single, I'll put it frankly. Uh, maybe some of you didn't imagine that family life would feel the way that it does. But I, can I encourage you that God's purpose and presence in your life is steadfast that he doesn't make mistakes, that even though you feel like you're in the wilderness right now and it's uncomfortable, that God is trustworthy and you can cling to his promises and his character, even though things have not gone the way that you hoped. The one who knows God can still maintain a joyful and thankful heart when things go awry because they know that God is sovereign to bring them, to bring you to where you need to be in the future. Do you believe that? He is fully able to carry you to where you need to be in two years, three years, 20 years. That you don't have to feel like you're in a midlife crisis because there's no crisis when God is in control. You're just on a journey where God is growing you and leading you. Do you believe that? That all the setbacks and all the challenges you experience, that's part of a journey that God is bringing you on like a father or a parent leading a child. And he lets hard things happen, but it's for your good and for your growth and ultimately for his glory. We can lose our gratitude so easily when our own crafted plans fall apart. But would you remember, God's purpose and plan never are derailed. So even when your schedule gets ruined for the week, even when you have to reshuffle your timetable because of someone else's insensitivity, even when you have to wait weeks or months or maybe years for something that you hope for, would you remember that God's timing is faithful? that he is good, that even in your very track, even if your very track of life seems totally redirected, that God is sovereignly leading you as a God who cares for you. There's a reason why in this world, if you put your gratitude into your own plans coming to fruition, that you constantly become ungrateful because those plans get blown to dust so easily. 
While the world's gratitude in the midst of uncertainty, they can have some of it. They can say, I learned, I grew from that experience. Your gratitude as someone who knows God is on a totally different level. Someone who doesn't know the Lord may go through life and say, you know, I'm kind of glad that I suffered that setback. I learned something from it. For you, your mindset is, I know that God put me through that difficult time, but I saw how he led me through it and how he taught me. Do you see the difference? One of them is trying to pick silver lining out of uncertainty. The other one recognizes there is a relationship. There is someone who loves me and he walked alongside me all the while and I've grown to know him more. There's a world of difference between the two. Next, I want us to consider their complaint. It's not just that they're angry that God has brought them into the wilderness and this is not where they wanted to be. They say there's no bread, there's no water, and we detest. It's not just we dislike or hate, we detest this miserable food. Well, let's debunk these complaints. Neither statement is true about no food and no water. In fact, when God first brought them into the land and they were hungry, it tells us in Exodus 16, God says, I will rain down bread. Right? God calls manna initially, even though it tastes like, tastes like uh, honeyed wafers, he calls it bread. If they are looking for something that is the equivalent of bread, they have it. And they have it every day that they need it. It's not exactly a gourmet meal, but it's something that can sustain them. It is something that is what they need in the moment. Is it true that they don't have water? Did you know that the Israelites are never recorded in the wilderness as of dying of thirst? Not a single one perished for lack of water. Right? That never happened. In fact, the first time they complained, God made the original Brita filter. He, you know, he takes a branch, throws it into the, the water, and suddenly the water is drinkable and sweet. Right? The water is made okay. There was never a point where they had no water and food. But they couldn't see it in the moment because they were dissatisfied with what God had given them. Friends, we got to be real careful. We need to not mix up that God has not given me what I need with God has not given me with what I want. Now, to be fair, all of us in their shoes would have been probably fed up with manna and regular water. I'm sure we would have craved grape juice. I'm sure we would have craved some fruits. I'm sure we would have wanted something a little different than the manna, right? It doesn't matter how good a food is. If you have to eat that for years on end, like I like Krispy Kreme. If you gave it to me 30 years in a row for breakfast, I would probably really appreciate something else more, even Cheerios, right? Oh man, finally, something that's not so sweet. Uh, you know, it, 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 in their shoes, it's understandable that they're not happy. But to say, Lord, you've not sustained us was untrue. And sometimes we lose sight of what God has given, which God deserves glory for, because it's not what we want in the moment. And folks, that's, that's just dissatisfaction on our part. That's just ingratitude. If my daughter were to come to me, Dad, I feel like you've not provided clothes and you've not provided a place to live and you've not provided me toys, how hurtful is that? Because we have tried and we've tried to give her what is good and we want to give her more, but we know what's good for her, right? How hurtful is it to say you've not given me anything and my, my, my life is dreary and downcast? I want to warn us against being dissatisfied because we are wanting 
things in this life. There's always more things that we could want in life, church. In these coming two months, you're gonna get bombarded with reminders that there are all these wonderful things out there. Black Friday is coming. All of you who work in retail, you know that it's hard, right? Cyber Monday is coming. You know so many birthdays are coming. If you do some calculation, you understand why, but November is the reason, there's gonna be lots of birthdays in November. If we have Christmas coming up, we have New Year's coming up. And rather than finding our joy in thanksgiving and gratitude because there's a lot of things I can enjoy and experience or even enjoy in giving things to people, would you remember that our gratitude is not hinged, our thanksgiving should not be hinged to what the world can provide? There was a king named Solomon who tried this. He tried every type of pursuit in life. And if you've read about his story, it's a tragedy because he achieves the zenith of success. He has more construction projects, more books and knowledge, more, uh, uh, more women, more wives, more servants, more animals, and more, more uh, vegetation than any other king or uh, any other hobbyist in the world. And he says all of it is empty and vanity. Folks, Gratitude cannot hinge on material things in life. I know that many of you, you're thinking, okay, we know this, we know that in America, it's not about materialism, but I want us to really remember that in this life where it's easy to put our enjoyment, to derive our, our enjoyment and gratitude out of things, that we need to remember to run to the one who is eternal, to the one who truly satisfies, to, to remember that this world and all of the things that the world has offered to us in the 21st century has not made us a more grateful world. Did you know that in this 21st century, uh, 20th century, that, 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 the, that the, the, the difference in how we live to the people 100 years ago has been greater than any other generational gap in history? You're all tired of the when I was your age stories. When I was your age, I walked to school both ways uphill, right? Or when I was your age, I ate rocks and bark for food. Yeah, no, it wasn't quite like that, but you know, prior to the 1900s, people did not have stoves 10% of people only had stoves or electricity or even phones in their house. Can you imagine your house in the wintertime? No stove, no electricity. It wasn't long ago in history that was not available to the majority of people. In 1915, most people did not have cars. Only 10% of people had a car. In 1930, 10% of people had refrigerators and washing machines. Have you ever had to wash your, hand, your, your clothes by hand? It's tedious. It messes up your hands. It dries them out. 1945, they got 10% of people had dryers in their house finally and air conditioning. Can you imagine living in Texas with no AC and no heating? Thank you, T, for guys like you who get into HVAC, right? Can you imagine 1960 that they had no dishwashers, no color TV? Take that for granted. 1975, 10% of people didn't have a microwave. I complain about our microwave a lot because it doesn't work one-third of the time. 1990, 10% of people didn't have a cell phone or internet access. How many of you here, be honest, get really antsy when you don't have internet access and don't have your cell phone? That's most of us here. I say all these things to help us realize, whether we realize it or not, a lot of times we do hitch or hinge 
our gratitude and our mood and our thanksgiving and our worship to God on having things, whether or not you do it intentionally or not. And what we need to do instead is to remember that God is the anchor for our gratitude and remember that the provider of all these good things should be our focus and not the provision. Anytime you enjoy something good in this life that God has provi uh, provided for you, remember to give glory to the one who gave it. Not for the thing itself, not for the enjoyment itself, but give the glory and praise to God. Perhaps the biggest evidence that this world will never make us fully satisfied is Adam and Eve. The fact that they had every single need provided for them in life, and even still the one thing they could not have, they went after. Folks, don't love the provision more than the provider. Let God be the anchor for your gratitude. When, when you see a beautiful scene and when you're enjoying your, your cushy, warm car in the winter, when you're enjoying provision and abundance of food, make sure you give real thanksgiving and gratitude to God. Let your thanksgiving before your meal be more than just a ritual that you do, but lead people into worship in that moment. And so often we, when we don't give proper gratitude, we get disciplined by God and sometimes he takes it away, what those things are, and sometimes he denies us. Or other times he slaps us on the wrist like he did here with the Israelites. Okay, it was a little bit more than a slap on the wrist. They got bit on the wrist. But we see that these snakes come. They start biting the Israelites in verse six. Some people even die. Yeah, it seems heavy. But to disregard all of God's goodness is not a small thing. You know, last week I talked about disregarding the Lord's Supper and taking God, eating, sinning against the body and the blood. On a smaller level, you can do that day to day by, by, by neglecting to worship God and neglecting to, to thank God for all that he has done and living in a, in a way where we are just dissatisfied with what he has provided. And I'm not saying that there aren't times where we truly are down and weary in life. But our countenance ought to reflect the king that we serve, folks. That ought to be the way. And so we see here that, uh, that there's this crisis that emerges. The snakes break out in the camp and the people turn back to God, right? They, they recognize that they have offended God, that they have gone and, and really messed things up with the Lord. And they are, uh, at this point, desperate. They turn to God, they turn to Moses and say, we have sinned against you, we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take away the snakes away from us. I don't think we're gonna get back to a place of gratitude unless we come to a place of repentance at some point and say, Lord, I really have taken you for granted. I need to come before the Lord and recognize, Lord, I, I, really, I really have enjoyed your blessing without worshiping you the way that you are due. That I, I need to change my mindset and my outlook when I have friends, when I have provision, when I have health, that these are all things that ought to lead to my rejoicing. That I ought to bless the Lord, O oh my soul, and all that is within me and have more than 10,000 reasons to be worshiping and praising your name. All these things should be true. And as we look at this outbreak of disease amongst the people, we see one of the clearest allusions to the gospel message in the Old Testament. God instructs Moses, after the people repent, to take a snake and put it up on a pole 
so that anyone who's bitten can look at it. And so Moses makes a bronze snake and puts it on the pole so that anyone who was bitten by that snake might look upon that bronze serpent and be saved. God's plan of rescue for them did not and uh, did not have to do with them making an acceptable sacrifice. It did not mean them having to make amends to Moses. It wasn't about them applying some medicine or some type of antidote to themselves to save themselves. What it required was a humble trust that though they were wicked sinners, God somehow in his grace has made a way that did not involve their own efforts. I want you to think about this. You're dying from a snake bite. And the people to your right and left are falling dead around you. You have probably but a few seconds or minutes to try to save your life. And you are told this outrageous way of survival. There's this bronze statue set up over there, this bronze serpent. Go over there and look at it and look upon it with faith that God is merciful and God is able to atone for your wickedness and your ingratitude and you will be saved. Would you do it? Or would you try to run for help? Would you try to find someone that's less affected? Would you try to find a way to save yourself? No doubt it was an action that took faith. More than that, it was an action that took humility and recognizing that right now all I can do is cast my final gaze at that serpent on a pole and hope that God takes mercy on my life for what I have done and forgives me, absent what I have done to make up for it. Friends, God has done that for us on a far deeper level. Jesus, the Son of God, says in John 3, 14 to 15, he makes it unquestionably clear. He said, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. It goes on to say that famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, God has secured a way to rescue you from judgment. He has made a way so that the penalty for sin that you should have incurred separating you from God for eternity would be fully paid for on the cross. And Jesus willingly went to and even joyfully went to face execution on that cross which was a symbol of man's wickedness and sin. You remember, have you ever asked yourselves, why a serpent? The serpent was a reminder that the people were sinful, that the people deserved death for the way that they dishonored the Lord. And yet it was then that reminder that God was going to pay the cost for them, that bronze serpent. On the cross, that cursed tree, as the Jews might refer to it, it was a reminder of our sin, our brokenness, and our rebellion. And God wanted us to remember that he paid that in full for us. That we don't have to do anything to make up for it because we cannot. And all we have to do is come before the Lord and belief and surrender to tell the Lord, God, I know that I am sinful. Save me, please. Have mercy on me for what I have done. 
If you have not made that decision before, it is the only way for salvation. Just as those Israelites bitten by snakes could only look to that bronze serpent, there was no other antidote in the world that could save them. The same is true of Christ lifted up on that cross. And this brings me to my most important point for today. God must be the anchor for our gratitude because he himself is our greatest gift in this life. Every one of you has received a gift that has thrilled you in this life. Maybe it's a gift that your parents gave you when you were young and it made your day. Maybe it was a gift of your loved one that you have in your life or your child and you're so grateful for them. But the truth is all of us know that these gifts at some point lose their luster. They become something that we're less than thrilled about and sometimes even annoyed about. Or sometimes we just don't think about it anymore. But God has given you such a gift in himself that as day to day, as you walk with him, as you worship him, as you, as you come before him and experience his mercy and grace, that this gift only becomes richer each day in your life. The reason God has to be the anchor for our gratitude is that he is the only one that can continually make you thankful in this life. Your spouse can't do it. Your career can't do it. Your pursuits and hobbies and enjoyments in this life will never do it. Your security and bank account and retirement will not do it. God alone can give you reason to rejoice every day. And here's the question for us, folks. Do we find our gratitude in what God has done for us? Are we people that are grateful because God is that God whose plan never derails and never fails? Are we grateful because God is the one who gives us every good and perfect gift, not just as something you came across in life, but something that your heavenly Father has gifted to you from above? Do you worship him because he has paid all of our debts through Jesus Christ? To sum it up, is he your anchor for gratitude in this life? The UC Berkeley studies conclude with this observation. In general, women are more grateful than men. Not sure why that is, but I believe it. I think women are more in touch more uh, with their emotions, more reflective about their lives. Guys, I think you would probably concede that maybe overall women are typically more likely to say thank you or I appreciate you to show gratitude. I believe it. The studies show that people in their ages of 18 to 24 are less grateful than other ages. That's not to knock on you guys at all, but maybe you guys are still figuring out life. Maybe you're not in the family stage of life where you have to show some gratitude to spouse lest you get into trouble or you're not in the workplace where you need to keep your coworkers encouraged. That's all right. They say married people are more grateful than unmarried. Uh, you know, I think that has to do with what I just said, that you need to give a lot of affirmation in marriage. But folks, I'm here to tell you today that your gratitude in life does not hinge upon your demographic. It hinges upon your relationship with the living, loving God. And if you're finding that you're ungrateful and you're finding that you're dissatisfied and you're miserable in life, can I just urge you, come back to the one who loves you. Take time to reflect on every good and perfect gift he's given to you in life. 
Even small things that maybe this world says, that's just life. We expect to make five-figure you know, paychecks, and we expect to be able to get through school. We expect to have daily necessities. Folks, that's not true, by the way. That's a lie. I tell you right now that my in-laws don't have any of the appliances that we got in the 1900s. It's not granted. Health is not to be taken for granted, right? We know people that have passed away recently and cancer, epilepsy, whatever it may be, took them early. It's, an, it's a ploy of the enemy to make you not rejoice in something as precious as your health. It's a lie that, well, you should just have family who loves you in a church that worships God together alongside you. Not everyone has that. In fact, I would venture to say the majority of people in this life don't have that. Folks, these are not small gifts from God. Would you make sure to anchor and ground your gratitude in all the ways that God has showed his love, but most of all, to remember Jesus Christ. He put his son in a place of ultimate misery and agony to bring you to himself. 1 Thessalonians 5, the Apostle Paul tells us that we are to rejoice always, to pray continually, to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It's a very tall order, and I confess to you, I fall way short of that. But I want to get there, and I think in the passage right before, he tells us how we get there. He reminds us in the passage before in the same chapter that we are children of the light purchased by the precious blood of Christ. If you remember that, you will have the means to live a grateful life. Would you bow your heads with me now as we take a time of reflection and response? Father, we ask here and now that your spirit would come to search our hearts Father, we know we fall short in so many ways to, to recognize your goodness, to rejoice in you, to bless your name, to, to show as a witness to the world that we are people that have the ultimate prize in Jesus Christ. And Father, today, this morning, I pray that you would show us in our lives where we have taken you for granted. Father, show us in our lives where the enemy has snuck in and made us cold and lukewarm towards God in places that we should be jumping with joy and saying, Father, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you that you count me as your child. Thank you that all the ways that I fail, Lord, that you overlook them and give me grace each morning. Thank you that you provide for my daily bread. You know what I need to eat and to wear. Would you take some time now and quietly reflect, Lord, where are the areas where I need to grow in gratitude? And pray that the Lord would change your heart and change your mind, that he would make your life a shining beacon of rejoicing, and gratitude, that he would build you up in such a way that when hard times come like it did upon Job, that you can say, Lord, you bless, you take away, but blessed are you, O Lord, blessed is your name because of who you are yourself. O Lord, we're far from that, but here and now, 
Make us a grateful people. As the congregation reflects upon it, I want to talk to you if you've not accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in your life. I want to let you know that God wants you to know how dearly, how much he loves you. And that understanding and that knowledge and experiencing his love can only be known when you surrender to Jesus and allow him to carry the weight of your sins away in full. Jesus offers to give you new life, a new restored relation with God. And if you would just come and cast your eyes upon Jesus, cast your eyes upon that cross where Christ died for you on Calvary and say, I believe you died for me. You are the means for my healing and my restoration to God. And I surrender my life to follow you. Jesus will come in and you will be born again in your life. Your, his spirit will come and transform you. I want to invite you, if you've not done that, if you want to make that decision here today, if you're not sure where I'm going to be when this life ends, and I don't think I have that joy in my life, but I want it, I want to encourage you to respond here and now. Lord Jesus, I'm trusting in you. Pray with me that, Lord Jesus, though I'm a sinner, though I'm ungrateful for all you have done, I believe you died for my sins and you invite me to trust in you as Lord and I do that this morning. If you have done that, he will come and live in you and you will abide in him. For the rest of you, would you continue now just for a time? Ask the Lord to show you where you ought to rejoice this week. Spirit of God, prompt the hearts of your sons or daughters, your children, show them where they ought to exercise this joy and let them leave this place with a new song in their hearts. Take this time now to respond.